want to talk? Oh, oh no, please do. There's no agenda here. I have nothing written out. see what we can go with these kind of questions but uh um who is shiva to you shiva is the invitation to be present 
and feel the totality, the unity of the all-pervadingness. And uh, being in present moment, this is the uh, destroyer of obstacles. Obstacles are external on the linear plane and they are really the product of the thinking mind. And Shiva is about coming home to the place where the primordial sound is still unstruck and flowing. And Shiva has in one hand uh, a primordial drum, another hand I think is fire, another hand he's got top quality weed. (laughs) 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 So that uh, weed actually is in in the hands of mindful practitioners and disciplines uh, contributes to zeroing in on what might be a difficult place to zero in on till you find it and know it and technically you can get there on your own or you're there already that uh, Shiva is uh, has male and female aspects there's, there's Shakti energy too so that Shiva isn't just <laughs> Shiva male female energy and so that is the union and the non-polarity well not polarity and the we call it omnipolarity, the present moment, continuous present moment. So when I do Shiva, it's an opportunity to use mind and focus of staying present and feeling the universal field. So here we are at the Art Silent Canvas, Apollo 37 Studios, as, as I call oh, it. But in, in the, uh, so as an homage to Apollo, who oh, we'll yeah. talk about this later. This is again, well, we may, I'm just going to kind of let this go and we'll see. It could be hours or, or not. Um, but yeah, so, you know, I, after living up here for 10 years and building a studio out of a house on a total other property I was living by myself kind of like a hermit for eight or nine years or something and then uh, um, seven years and then you know having a family deciding I needed to set up another place Uh, I'd always dreamed of having a barn which I kind of created a temple uh, to music in there and uh, um, so we're sitting outside the barn in the fire pit area we're going to have a gathering tonight it's going to be really wonderful Um, But we're here to talk about uh, creativity, sound healing, all um, how we think about music and uh, possibly cosmic or spiritual concepts. Um, We did, the the event that's bringing us together is that we did an album in 2014, and it's 2021 now for the people that are listening in 2200. So, and... uh, uh, sat on it for a while finally are able to put it out um uh so we did this record so i wanted to this was a nouse project which we're going to get into this of course but what the meaning of nouse which is very true to rg's heart um but let's kind of talk about i guess how we met the the serendipitous kind of gathering of the two of us or the three of us sorry 
um, the two of you, the one of me. And uh, um, <laughs> the one of all of us, the circle of celebration. Um, so I was I was at Ananda Ashram, which is a special a second home or a primary home for for Laraj or both of you. Um, upstate New York. In upstate New York as well, a little south of here. And um, I was there to do a sitar workshop with Rup. Verma. Verma, yeah. Um, and uh, uh, what was it? It's funny because you remember what this workshop's title was, but I don't remember. I don't remember. It was like sound healing and sitar or something? Or? Uh, the nada. The na- nada, nada yoga. Nada it was nada yoga. yoga. That's what it was, yeah. yeah. First off, can you tell me a little bit about your history with Ananda? And it's Sri Sri Brahmananda Saraswati. Thank you. Who was known originally as Doctor Rasmamurti Mishra. He was a a neurosurgeon, psychiatrist. Came from India in the early fifties, right? The early fifties. Could be. I think so and worked at Bellevue Hospital. In fact, he was chief of one of the departments. So did John, who's here with us tonight. It's really interesting. Well, yeah. Knew, yeah. And, um, and he, he found, this, as, as I'm told historically, that many people, uh, staffers at the hospital, started coming to him for advice. So... He would hold um, sessions at his apartment, and more and more people were seeking him during his not being a doctor time, uh, and looking to him as a guru. And uh, fast forward, I guess after several years of balancing all of that, um, a group of people who were gaining a lot from Sri Brahmanand, er, Dr. Mishra, uh, formed what was called the Yoga Society of New York. And then from that, they bought the property in Monroe, New York, that became Ananda Ashram 56, 57 years ago, something like that. Had you been there before you met Laraji? No, 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 I had not been there before going with Laraji. When did you start going there? 1979, and I used to can. <laughs> remember that date because I was invited by a woman who was pregnant at the time. Not by me. (laughs) Pregnant at the time. (laughs) And uh, her daughter named Bhavani is, uh, whenever I see them I'm reminded of the time that Bhavani was uh, in the womb of her mother. So 79 was uh, I was invited by the mother at a yoga retreat, a yoga center that was opening somewhere in Ridgewood, New Jersey. And I was invited to go play music for this yoga studio opening, and they were there to represent Ananda Ashram. They heard me playing music. She and another 
representative of Ananda, and they invited me to come to Ananda in exchange for my music, a free weekend has come. And I eventually got to Ananda on a very snowbound day in New York. I remember taking a bus up to um, Monroe, and the bus from New York to Monroe, then getting a cab from there to the ashram. And uh, the grounds were covered, just pristine silence. And as the cab drove away, I was standing outside of the main house. The cab left, and leaving me drowning in this pristine, blissful quietude. So my introduction to Ananda was very blissful, very serene. And the teacher wasn't there at the time, because that time of the year he was either in Florida or California. So I went into the reception room, and there was this quiet young receptionist greeted me. And it was my first time at Ananda. And I would go up infrequently to play music until one particular warm spring day, the teacher was a return to being at the ashram during the warm seasons, that uh, he met me on his property. Before then, I had met him in uh, places like uh, Beacon Theater in New York. We did something called the UN Year of the Child. And there were Odetta, many other speakers were lined up on chairs on the stage, and I was invited to come and play glue music, music in between speakers. So I would sit on stage and play zither. And it, it was about a two-hour show, and about uh, near an hour and 45 minutes, uh, maybe only half of the speakers had gotten to talk. <laughs> and so the MC said, we've got to make this real short. Can everybody come up and just do one little quick thing? And Sri Brahmananda was next. He came up brought a chair with him, sat cross-legged on a chair in his orange robes, orange hat, and his black uh, magnetic wand, closed his eyes and went, ram 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 Then he picked up the chair and left the stage. And I said, heavy. That was my introduction to him. Then I would see him at Hare Krishna restaurants. I'd go have all you could eat for $5 and... Sometimes I'd pass by the celebration hall and he would be standing there watching the uh, Hare Krishna celebration in progress. This is in the city? This is in the city. Okay. Yes. So you became officially his student? Did you like ask him to be your teacher? No, I just showed up, played music for the meditations, asked questions, listened very intently. His way of representing... Uh, the Vedanta, or the teaching of the non-dual space, was intriguing. And I would watch him closely, body language, breath language, eye language. And that was a teaching. Here was someone who was demonstrating uh, consciousness. I considered his teaching was full of leanness, no fat. And uh, very in the moment, here, now. So I would come often, play music, sometimes in Florida, sometimes in California. And eventually my questions got fewer and fewer. And one particular weekend, I went up to the ashram when everyone else had gone to some celebration somewhere else. So it was just myself and a friend musician, Nadi. We were at the ashram. And he probably figured that I was not... uh, interested in uh, the social life, 
that I had come up to the ashram, and he told me, you know, you've been wearing half orange. It's time to wear a full orange. You're a monk. Time to go full sannyasin. And this I said, is a, Sri Brahman Nanda yes, said this. Yes. And I said, oh. <laughs> I said, hey, this sounds extreme. And me wear orange because I associated the idea of Swami with people from India who had certain credentials. And I said, I don't know if I could pull this one off. <laughs> So uh, he said, we're going to give you honorary ceremony this weekend. And there was, the next day was going to be a fire ceremony. And some of the people who were on the ashram were going to help co-facilitate this. And he gave me a full set of orange clothes and gave me the name. At that time, it was uh, Natarajan Narananda. Uh, Natarajan, the dancer. And uh, Narananda for the bliss of sound. And I was impressed that he heard that the Nadananda would come from my experience of being immersed in Nadam in the 70s and having a full-blown Nadam transformative experience. But I've never really shared it with anyone, but he heard it in my music or he was psychologically uh, attuned to this. He was known to give very surprising psychological readings to people. So the next day, uh, I uh, didn't... I have, Oblige, and I showed up, took wear the robes, and he gave me a, uh, a honorary ceremony, an honorary initiation. He said that you have been initiated within. You have already been initiated, and it's trying to surface. Now it's time to speed it up. That was his language. And afterwards, I asked some of the other swamis, what does this mean? Sexually, no sex? <laughs> <laughs> he says... No, no seductive sex. He says, everyone is your friend. You're in service to the whole world. Uh, and that sort of was the gist of it. And uh, he, he saw my interest. He saw my dedication and devotion to understanding, reading the Bhagavad Gita and the Vedanta, and doing my inner meditation and getting clear within. And so when people say, is he my guru? And he constantly would remind us, I am not your guru. The guru is inside your inner guru. Do trance. His favorite word was trance. Go into trance and connect with your inner guru. were you involved in the yoga spiritual meditation universe before you met him were you already like when when did that begin for you about uh, nine years earlier my role in Putney Swope the movie um, in a movie movie Putney Swope it was it's an underground oh, classic it's a classic you were acting in it yeah oh so I was played a part in it. Robert Downey Sr., uh, I think he wrote and produced it and directed it. So I was in the movie without understanding what the whole movie was about because it was filmed mostly in Wall Street at night when the buildings were available. 
So I went the two nights that my scene was filmed, and I did it, got paid. But I didn't know what the whole movie was about. And the Putney Swope, I thought maybe it was a Greek tragedy or whatever. <laughs> and so when the movie came out finally, I saw the movie and I said, whoa. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, I guess it's okay. It was, it was pot smoking at the time, uh, sexual activity, heavy language, and very questionable presentation of what you call the black American in reference to business management. So I said, okay, I did the movie and there it is. So one fine Sunday, I'm walking down the street in Harlem and I'm feeling very New York-y and the sun is shining and I see this church and the sign says, poetry reading, come in, it's free. That's the magic word, free. So I walked in and I sat down. The church was half full and up front was this young man of color reading poetry, very vibrant, but very angry. And I just happened to sit down when he was in the middle of the poem, and the niggas who did Putney Swope should be off. And the niggas who did Putney Swope should be off. And the niggas who did Putney Swope should be off. And I'm saying, oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> if he only knew. What kind of responsibility do I want to take on the impact that my participation in the mass media had on anybody? And that's when I became attracted to the idea of meditation. Shirley MacLaine at that time was involving herself in uh, spiritual investigation, and that kind of tipped me up. I said, okay, maybe meditation is what I want to do in order to get in touch with my core intention in life, my, my identity. And as I tried to research meditation, it felt like people from India had a monopoly on meditation and that we were eavesdropping on it. So it wasn't until a Westerner named Richard Hittleman put out a book on Bantam Press called The Little Book of Meditation and Yoga. And I read the book, it demystified the practice of meditation, and I found my relationship to meditation. and. Uh, that moment on, I began to soar. I just drank up meditation. And I knew I was on a, a meaningful path because I had grown up in the Baptist church and there was lots of teachings I didn't understand. But with meditative sitting, these teachings would come into the foreground and I would understand things that were rather abstract and serene before. Also, uh, my music shifted, creativity shifted big time. All the wonderful music that I thought I would have to read on, from somebody else's manuscript was already inside of me waiting to be released. So practicing my musical instrument and practicing meditative understanding 
brought a lot of wonderful music from inside. A lot of improvisation uh, took a big quantum leap. And I said, wow, I'm going to put the rest of my life on hold and let meditation be the center out of which my life is going to unfold. And uh, three or four years after that, uh, I had gotten into long hours of sitting from about 12 at night to f 5 or 6 in the morning. And I used the process I got from this transcendental meditation that Richard Hillman suggested. It's just transcend all your titles. Take every title off, every name, every classification that's ever used to refer to you and just be with what's left, just the pure I am. And I learned how to do some fast breathing. I learned how to sit still for 21 minutes and focus on a point on the wall and take off all the titles and I would be in meditative trance effortlessly. No fidgeting, uh, no worrying about time. I found that the titles, they're the ones that possess the anxiety and uh, the confusion and whatever. And that without the titles, just the pure I am without thought attached was the resting place, the bliss zone. And uh, for three or four years into that, I somehow attracted a listening experience of hearing Nadam uh, in the form of multiple layers of brass instruments. And the experience didn't in, in happen. In meditation? Hmm? In the meditative? Well, I usually started meditation about 12 at night when the rest of the house, I was living in a family house at the time, and the house was quietest, so I would sit in meditation in the living room chair. So this particular night, uh, I had gone out to a walk around JFK Airport, and I had come indoors, and I was taking my coat off, making eye contact with myself in the mirror. I keep forgetting that one aspect. And as I was making eye contact, whoosh, everything shifted, and I was aware of this music, this most glorious music. I knew no one in the house could be making music or playing anything at that time of the night. And it was an interesting way of being with music because it was non-linear. It wasn't as if some external resource was sending music to my ears and my ears were picking it up. Because I was being aware in a, in a trance way as if I was eavesdropping in on myself as an infinite field vibrating. And the mood or tonality of this experience was like the glorious experience of a cosmic homecoming, a cosmic reunion. Everything is going on simultaneously right now. This is where eternity is. And my analytical mind was trying to get in on this. Is wow, can we record this? Can we write this down? How are we going to share this? What are we going to do with this? <laughs> and it subsided maybe five or ten minutes. And I repeat that this never happened. <laughs> that the teaching is that there's no past or future. There's the eternal present moment. So after that experience, I was so uh, taken by the experience, maybe a day or two later, I found myself in uh, Lincoln Center Library, music library, to research to see if there was anything on this. And I did find there's something called Shabdat Yoga, then there's Music of the Spheres, then the Nada Yoga. Eventually I found out that the word in the Bible, in the beginning was the word, that the word is what is referring to this experience, the beginning, the sound, current. 
And uh, shortly after that, I was guided to be uh, pawn my guitar. I thought I was pawning my guitar for money. But in the um, pawn shop, you know, this voice says, that instrument you saw in the window, swap your guitar for that instrument. Don't take money. And that instrument was the auto harp. And uh, the voice intrigued me. I said, how is this happening? The voice was so clear and distinct. And it was as if a great, great cosmic grandparent giving me this warm, loving, safe guidance. And I said, I'm going to follow this rabbit hole. This is interesting. So I swapped it, swapped my guitar, got the auto harp, and I made a deal. How about throwing $5 in on it? <laughs> so I left there with auto harp and $5, and I began practicing open tuning on the auto harp, not making the connection that this instrument would help me, would give me uh, a format or a language for referencing that non-linear sound hearing experience. I could never repeat that music because it has no ending or beginning. It's an unstruck sound uh, force going on all the time. But I recall it, I remember the impact, and, I, and as a result of that experience, which I believe Sri Brahmananda called my initiation, it was my nod into Nada Yoga, the music of the universe. And once hearing it, the nervous system vibrates differently. The sense of what this physical world is about is taken differently. And so in the music that I reach for on this side of the veil happens to be something that people call celestial or transcendental or deep listening. That uh, it's music that paints a picture of a feel that's more immediate than the third dimension and that is more durable and eternal than the temporary world and that uh, the music that I reach for has no ending or beginning so it's, I feel that any of the music that I've been involved with anyone could turn the music on at any place and turn it off at any place and that it's sort of holographonic meaning that every note every point represents the wholeness of the sound of the field. M meaning the turning off and the turning on. You're you're talking about like in the in the in the medium of a recording now. I'm talking about weed. <laughs> no, I'm talking about the actual turn <laughs> turning on, like when people uh, want to like use my music. Like, like, uh, enter. Yeah. So en you enter. don't. There's no official ending or, or like, beginning. Yeah, like the the way that they use turned on, like in the LSD, like in the 60s. Yes. 70s, like that kind of turning on. Not well, that we're talking about that, but I'm talking yeah. about yeah, broadcasting. Like in the medium of like record modern technology. Yes, yeah. a playing back. Yeah. That it, I'm not offended if you start my but playback in the middle somewhere and stop before the supposed end because supposedly every point is the representation of the whole field. Holographonic, I call it.
you call it the auto harp, but you also call it the zither at times. Yeah, auto harp might be more appropriate. Auto self, harp of the self. But zither was uh, kind of offered to me when I started touring in Europe. I think it was felt that it was a more proper, classy name for it. Yeah. You, you. Let's uh, say about Americans. What's the difference between Americans and yogurt uh, culture? <laughs> but that that zither uh, was a considered a more cultified name. Auto harp was a contrived name for the automatic zither. But uh, a zither has a nice zing. Zither has a nice but zing to it. It also has to do with removing the chord bar. Removing the if chord bar. If you bars. have the chord bar on the auto harp, it's not a zither. Yeah. If you remove the chord bar, it then it become, become. then it can be classified yes. as a zither. But the auto harp is culture in the Appalachian Mountains, right. the Appalachian uh, region in the United States. The auto harp was used because it's chord bars, and if you tune into some uh, Appalachian musical videos, you may see guitar uh, and banjo and the uh, auto harp. And, and, and dulcimer. A dulcimer. Lot of dulcimer, yes, dulcimer. I do weed. Uh, generally, two people can ask that a certain way. Somebody who's offering me or a police officer who's pulled me over. <laughs> <laughs> Do you still, like, present day, do you... Yes, it's very, very, uh, very good ritual. Yeah. Yes. Daily ritual? Uh, I'd say (laughs) daily. Yeah. Yeah, we breathe air. (laughs) You breathe weed. Somebody (laughs) says that marijuana or psychedelic trance is like a location. You go someplace. It's like a vacation, and you don't have to take an airplane to get there. It's It's a definite location. I say it shifts the vibrational uh, understanding of what's what the field is. You know, it, it opens up. Oh, the trees are lovely. Yeah. I appreciate the universe, gravity. You start noticing things that are already in front of you, and and uh, it's different than earlier. Earlier, you would low low quality weed. You'd smoke a whole joint and you might get somewhere. Then you start hearing of Sensamia and a more lavish Colombian red, Colombian, uh, Jamaican gold. And eventually it gets to a place where you have to imbibe less because there's a higher quality. 
And uh, then you also understand that you mix it with yoga, with internal practice. That's why I say it's with internal practice, inwardly mobile weed. <laughs> that uh, I found this out. Whatever I do 45 minutes before ingesting determines where I go afterwards. You know, if you're going down in misery, depression, it'll take you there. If you're going up in enlightenment and awareness of cosmic attunement it'll take you there that's what the teacher said wherever wherever you're going it'll take you there so there's a amount of responsibility of setting your intention and setting intention means of practicing the intention before whether it's sitting or ritual or affirmations or your lifestyle and to be mindful of thoughts watching your mind what what your mind is channeling because you're going to amplify it I say a classic example is if you're a mathematician, mathematician, pick us a, a problem or a, a, an understanding and just dwell on it for 45 minutes. And then during after ingestion, watch how the mind or the imagination brings solutions or brings comments in on that subject. So using it mindfully, it's very useful. Not using it mindful, it could become a prison and it could stunt spiritual and emotional growth too because it can keep you distracted from your callings your callings to evolve I feel it could yeah I mean I have struggled a bit in my perspective of I undeniably useful for, for music and creativity like there's no I mean it's very clear to see in the way that you kind of talked about about how it's a an ally for sometimes grounding us in the present moment just in really kind of being mindful and very conscious of what's happening and in comparing like the states of clarity that i find that it the precision of mindfulness seems to be it's the and you kind of alluded to it when like the intention isn't there but i find even when the intention is there like the capacity for concentration is very different than yes. when you've cultivated mindfulness in a meditation setting and like through like a really devoted practice over a period of time or just like kind of really grounding yourself in a regular, very like uh, conscious, sober practice. I agree. And you and also with regular use, there's like the often also I find there that you're there's a lack of clarity in the next day, like, you know, the, the morning and, the, and it's hard to kind of come out in, in, in buddhism you know it would be like considered like a hindrance like sloth and torpor or like a a a, a, a drawdown of energy um it's anyways i i i find the same thing with mushrooms and other things as well like they they kind of are like in a way it's like they aggregate energy in a short amount of time but in replace in the exchange for that you displace like a lack of energy at another time they're saying that the short-term memory or affects your memory my answer is that it brings you in as you call it in such a intense concentration that you you you, you space out things that uh that aren't of interest to you in the moment and also the uh the idea of music realizations come yeah. uh you make connections or connect dots in a big time also but that also happens like in a meditation, deep meditation, of course, yeah. Vipassana, like you mentioned earlier. Realizations, yeah. insights come. 
and uh, they can be mind transforming lifestyle transforming realizations that you see oh I don't need to be doing that anymore or I should be taking advantage of this or hey everything I was working for I now have I have to stop struggling start getting realizations yeah like you had mentioned the mathematician but I, I don't know if you know that story of Carl Sagan like Carl Sagan actually was an, an avid marijuana user not avid like regular but he would use it like um, he was vocal about it um, as a, you know an astrophysicist he found that when in those times of being real in relaxation when he would yeah. smoke he would have some of his deepest kind of insights and you know we know that it can has that magic um Oh man, this could go like for <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so when you think about it having been uh, banned or criminalized, it didn't affect those who knew inwardly that this is their calling to explore it and use it. I guess it's the ones who were experimenting with it without a clear a mindfulness that maybe got got sloppy about it and their lives got sloppy, and so it casts an image for the idea of the use of marijuana. I think somewhere in Africa it's considered taboo to be considered a user of marijuana. And I would feel that the people who have used it and made contributions to science, to medicine, to art, aren't, weren't that vocal. Your rock musicians, aren't, they don't hold it back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. But uh, how many of the beautiful works of art that we all cherish... Uh, were inspired by artists who uh, took a toke or two. <laughs> and we'll never know. And we'll or three. never know. Yes. But maybe that's what, when you say rehabilitation, drug rehabilitation, I think that should be included in, in the purpose of drug rehabilitation, rehabilitating our respect for the way that some of these psychedelics have used as medicines and teachers aligning with your inner teacher. Yeah and uh, how to use it among young people, how to practice relaxing the body, how to uh, practice affirmations, how to align your mind so that when you go in or get stoned, however you call it, that wonderful, beautiful, artistic, creative, constructive uh, avenues open up and language opens up and opportunities open up for you, through you. It sounds like you really approach it this way that um when the plant is seen and taken in a ritualistic matter with intention like really beautiful things can unfold but when it's taken from a state of kind of aversion or in order to try to run away from something or avoid like a you know an emotional state there or a relationship state then it can kind of lead to uh uh, the unmindful problems that you were kind of mentioning. Yes. Like there's, it is strange because you can really see it in people that you know, that I've known that are active users. You can tell that it's not really that as be beneficial, whereas other people, and it's hard to like really align. It's the, it's like, it's the other work in a way that they're doing around it. I think that kind of infuses that. It's having a respect for the potentiality and an awareness that you're not, um, your intention isn't to party. Yeah. Your intention ha has an acknowledgement of a potential sacred 
aspect. It's uh, when Laraji and I were driving up, we were talking a little bit about Rudolf Steiner's philosophies and how, and the impact he's had on early childhood development. And he was a, he had amazing, brilliant mind, um, and he spoke of the intervals uh, in terms of the epochs. Have you, and do you know anything about Steiner epoch theory? I haven't read the that much about them. The e- epochs, uh, in other words, um, the Lemurian epoch had a resonant quality to uh, a non-interval because the Lemurian aspect uh, or civilization, if you believe it, that it existed as a civilization, was still totally uh, umbilicalized to source. So there was no sense of duality. There was a sense of unity. And in music theory, we were talking the intervals, that this is, it's just a oneness so then the next epoch, according to Steiner, is the Atlantean. So then it's more, the more watery, and it's the, the interval of two. And there's a, a whole energy and, uh, and, a, and a whole mindset to it. The third, the interval of the three, was the ancient civilizations, especially like Egypt and early India and moving into uh, early Hellenistic thinking. I don't remember what the fourth, the interval of the fourth, but the interval of the fifth is massively important, especially for you as a new dad, because Steiner beautifully postulates that children, childhood, it lives in the tonality of the interval of the fifth. And the interval of the fifth is the Pythagorean, yeah. right? And and it's the it's the epoch when we saw on the planet simultaneously Confucius, Buddha, <coughs> and Asclepius. These three in- extraordinary masters, all during the interval of the fifth, when the whole planet supposedly resonates. To that frequency, and it is where children are to be met. We don't meet them there. We don't, and that's incumbent on us as adults to meet children where they're at. The interval of the fifth is a whole massive study. off and do a little bit of sound healing background from here, I think, because uh, 
from my time in studying um, uh, sound healing and uh, many of these references that you spoke to and John Bowie, who's going to be with us tonight, who's a pioneer in that field, he, he, some of the stuff that he, uh, I've spoken with him about led me to really kind of be analyzing the world within the realm of intervals, like what you said. And it's funny, I actually make all decisions now, uh, usually, not always, but usually anything that can be like statistically determined, like any decision I need to make where there's like a number, I always allocate it based off of the golden mean, which is the perfect fifth, which is two thirds of like an octave, which is like 60, you know, 0.618. Or the the other side of that, or a fraction of it, or a fractal of it, thirty two, thirty two point eight, and uh, um, uh, so I think this it's a good time to talk a little bit about like our backgrounds in sound uh, sound healing was how you guys came together, right? Like you met, I think you want to talk about that a little bit, and and your background in sound healing. The international uh, sound healing conference was in its like, I think. 13th or 14th of 26 years of existence. Laraji had been with it from the beginning. It was uh, the brainchild of Jonathan and Andy Goldman in Boulder, Colorado. Um, And it was bringing together people from all over the world for an 8 to 10 day immersion residency at this beautiful... um, space in Colorado on a ranch that that is a dedicated spiritual community. So um, Laraji had been part of that as faculty for since its inception and um, I attended an event that Jonathan and Andy were doing at Rowe Conference Center in Massachusetts. It was a short, uh, like a four-day weekend event and had no intention of going to the intensive. This was in mid-May and the intensive is in early July. And um, dear friends of mine had attended the intensive a year or two prior, connected with Laraji, connected with Jonathan and Andy, told me about it. It was interesting, but I wasn't that drawn. And at Roe, Andy said, well, why don't you come to the intensive? I said, Andy, this is already May. You're talking July. Oh, I don't think so. And then I couldn't shake it. It just, it kind of like was planted. That seed was planted. And from the time I left Massachusetts until sometime in mid-June it just was eating at me and I kept thinking I I can do it next year this is I don't want to do this back to back anyway but I did (laughs) long story short I ended up picking up the phone calling Andy she said she had a wait list at that point Um, and and I thought part of me was relieved I thought oh good Uh, I, I can put that off and the next day she phoned and she said, gosh, I don't know how this happened, but you're at the top of the list and there's a spot for you. 
So I did. I attended, uh, and that's where I, I met Laraji uh, on faculty. I think I came over to you to deliver a message from yeah, yeah. friends. A nonverbal message in the form <laughs> of a hug. Yeah. yeah. My friend said, if you see this guy in orange, go over to him, tell him Marjolaine and Doug are giving him this hug. Mm. Right? Yes. In the, in the dining hall. Yes. And uh, and we connected and found that we were both in the state of New York, and um, that kind of did it. Yeah. We, we reconnected as soon as we got back to the East Coast, and I had kind of a soiree of invited a bunch of the people from Colorado, a couple from Mexico, a fellow from France, a young woman from um, Romania and said, come, come on, let's just all come to my house. So we had like an extended mini sound intensive. Laraji came up from the city. And shortly after that, we started collaborating. The following year, when I went back to the intensive, Jonathan and Andy offered me a faculty position. They refunded my tuition and said, no, you're part of our faculty now. And then from there until the 26th anniversary or 27th, I don't remember how many we went. 2017 was the last one. Um, and that experience truly, the, the intensive I'm talking about, it was like being stoned in the best possible way for 10 days, but not using any substance. It was this heightened uh, energy, having people from all over the world bringing their sound healing, their musical um, expression, their curiosity, it was a remarkable place. If it were ever to happen again, I would be the first one there. Um, so that what when what what year was that? Our gosh, two thousand nine, eight or nine, two thousand eight or nine. So after that, you guys started uh, perform. How long after that did you start Within performing a year. together? Okay. Yeah. Because two thousand. What year did we go with? Blues Control, 2011. I'm not remembering exact. Because short, shortly after we started doing uh, a young group called, well, a duo, Blues Control. <clears throat> Have you heard of them? <clears throat> Leah Cho and Russ Waterhouse. They were very, very popular at a time, and they were young ambient musicians, and they came and sought out Laraji. Um, and came to a performance or two of his and and um, they were just so excited to connect with him and offered that he come to Black Dirt Studios in New Jersey um, and do some improvisational recording and we were at Ananda Ashram and I said oh I'll drive you there to the to Black Dirt um, and when we got there, 
Leah, I had never met them. Leah said, well, oh, you're a, mus- you're a musician. Do you want to join us? I said, well, okay. I just really came to give him a ride. And we recorded for like six, seven hours nonstop. Wow. And none of the, well, the two of us had done some things together. They were all the time, but it was just like this instant synergy. And uh, that resulted in um, a release called That Healing Feeling, which was released, I think, the November of 2010 or 11, no, one of that. And it r- got rated as the fir- first top pick for Pitchfork for that year, and it resulted in a seven-country tour, oh, wow. the four of us. All, all vegetarian, which was so cool, uh, and we d- did a tour in from February to early April, um, and it was that was a our first I think s- mm, super performance experience, both together and and in collaboration with these two young wonderful yeah. musicians. met at Ananda, so I was there to do uh, 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 not a yoga workshop, sitar workshop, and you were We're just passing through. You had a performance. No, no, we were performing, performing. as we did, three to four times every year. We would have residency. Because of Laraji's connection to Ananda, we would do about a one-week residency at Christmas into New Year. We would always be there for Guruji's birthday celebration, 4th of July, another week. So whatever period that was that you were there, we were in residence. Yeah. So we were offering laughter play shops okay. and concert. So and you were there for a period of time. Yes. <clears throat> so, um, so I randomly was just there. I was there just for a weekend. And I think it must have been the first or second day, but I, it was, we, I think either lunch or dinner, we... Somehow you and I started talking, and I th- I thought it was that I just sat down at the table, the lunch table, and you guys were eating, and I just sat there, and you struck up a, a conversation, I think, because you're so friendly, and um, and then we just kind of found out we were all musicians, and I had not heard of of either of you guys in my ignorance, and. Uh, um, but at the so it, I think we decided it was like November or December of that year, 2013, and um, uh, so I had been planning the Naus. We call it Naus now. This is the whole thing, uh, but the Naus project, the first Naus project, for probably about a month or two, as I was uh, making the plans of what that was going to be, I met you guys at Ananda. And I think I mentioned it to you. Did I mention? Do you remember that at all? That there, my recall is, you were in Rupchi's um, workshop, 
and he, and which is the uh, the courtesy at Ananda is if you're a teacher you invite any of the other teachers to come to your your sessions and Rupji invited us I don't think Laraji chose to go and I did go to the Nada yoga and I don't remember if we met first in the dining hall or there but either way we then continued talking more um, and I actually remember it was funny because one of the things that you mentioned at the time was that uh, mind, the mind science guy I, remember, I had remembered this because Edward Holmes or something was that his name or what was uh, uh, Ernest Holmes oh, Ernest Holmes yeah Ernest yeah Holmes and mind science and yeah. yeah science of mind and what we were talking about during the breaks in Rupji's workshop we were speaking of what spiritual path and you asked me I believe uh, well is this your path and I said well actually I consider Guruji even though I've never met him in the physical to be one of my teachers but I follow more of Thich Nhat Hanh and you lit up oh okay so it was Thich Nhat Hanh that was the connection yep and, okay and as it's been so many for me in my life yeah and then I asked yeah. you if you ever experienced Course in Miracles which was Ernest Holmes Science of Mind it, it was an evolution of he was one of the influencers of oh, Course I didn't know in that. Miracles okay I didn't know there was a connection there um, so I had whatever it was and it's all kind of in, like amorphous to me at this point but I thought it would be an uh, um, amazing idea if you guys joined this Naus uh, conceptual gathering, this musician retreat concept that that uh, I constructed there at Dreamland, and uh, um, uh, which is kind of funny because I didn't even know. Any, I don't even think I knew anything <laughs> about whether you guys are improvisers or I don't. I didn't know. I don't know how it happened, but I just just knew it was right. Maybe it was because I saw you perform in that yoga class. I don't know, but whatever. It was a brilliant idea. That wasn't me. I mean, it was just like whatever came through me. It was brilliant for that well, moment. And it was almost like uh, it was like this almost afterthought. As I again, as I recall, because we were ready to say goodbyes. You had shared a little bit about what you were going to do, and then it's like you turned around and came back and said, "You know, I have an idea." And it was like that it came out. Yeah. And we said, we looked at each other and said, well, yeah, we're free, whatever you said the days. And you said, well, I, I'd like you to come up like the fourth or fifth day that we're... We said, okay. <laughs> Sounds cool. So that when, when we did do the show, which or the project, which then re, you know we've released the three albums of the main core ensemble and the string players and everything. This is the last one, the fourth. Um, it was on the last day of the sessions. It had been a really long week, really intense for us, and it was like some challenging vibes between people from just being in such an intense setting for so long. 
and uh, then you guys walk in, and uh, and everyone I remember even responding after the session, and for the people at the time this will come out, will have you know been able to listen to the music, and I think it's just kind of what the two of you bring wherever you go, which is kind of this light that just radiates into the conscious space of what where you enter. Um, but I mean, I. You know, what I always thought, what I think is really amazing, uh, fascinating about this album and what was really great about that moment was that it's just really fascinating to hear these, this group of, you know, experimental rock improvisational musicians, you know, blending with that world experience that you guys bring in, which I know brings an element of everything. But, um, you know, I there's... I, I know most of of the the catalog, the Laraji catalog now. I don't really think there's there is. Do you have another project that was like that at all, where you had like kind of a big band playing around you? Um, closest to come to there was an Italian project, uh, My Orangeness, where we were in an isolated barn studio in Italy, and there might have been six or seven other musicians, in the improvisation style. So similar, similar kind of setup. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, but uh, and in the Nouse project, I had brought like a huge amount of ideas, which also included just free improvisation for the other groups and the, the other members in the session. But in, but I also brought all these kind of written out little seed improvisational ideas that then defined like these larger improvisations that became the pieces. But in our session, there was nothing. There was no information. It was totally open and free as it, as it should have been and it needed to be. We had no idea what was going to happen. And we just flowed with it. And um, it's, for me, it's amazing to hear like how there's an arc of like a, a whole piece. And I always find that that's amazing and free improvisation in a way how that can happen how the composition just unfolds um how much of your music is like that laraji like that is really free in composition or like that you've actually like how much do you actually often work out a composition before you record it versus just like flowing on like totally like structure melody harmony the closest i come to that was with song album vision songs volume one Uh, even those the songs unfold like I would unfold a lecture. I have a theme, a sense of where I want to go, but then it's like live uh, interacting and free association. I would say more than 90, 90% of the music that that I've been able to share that has been meaningful to others to listen to have been on that that frequency. Spontaneous, in the moment, feeling intuitive. Yeah, and I mean, it kind of reminds me of uh, at the end of that session. So we had set up, which we have some video of it, people will be able to see. But um, the the band was kind of sprawled out in, in the Dreamland, Dreamland Studios up here in upstate New York in an old church in a giant circle. And the album's called A Circle of Celebration, you know, to kind of honor that kind of concept as well as the, the Naus uh, symbol and concepts. But... Uh, um, and Laraji and our, uh, you two sat in in the center, and I sat facing you. Mm. And um, again, like I, I remember this part quite clearly that I I didn't really know what 
to I didn't really know what to expect at all with the session. I didn't because I really didn't know your music at all. I'd never seen you. Never really. I don't even know if I'd really heard you. Um, uh, but I remember sitting in front of you, Laraji, and when you opened up your mouth to sing, I was taken aback in a very strange way, like a very a, a way that's very hard to actually communicate in the sense that there is a kind of power and I guess presence in your voice that I hadn't really I think heard from someone else and um it wasn't because like you know you have a beautiful voice but it wasn't because you were like Sam Cooke or something you know or like like uh, like the great like Marvin Gaye or like you know there was something else that was kind of hard to very hard to define but I remember sitting there and when you started singing I just suddenly felt really small <laughs> like it really like I really felt like I was in a very large presence and I felt really tiny and I I uh um and I remember at the time and I came up to, I spoke to you about it afterwards it was one of the actually few times in my life where I actually felt like the experience of like a student guru moment like where I was actually like getting a transmission in a way or like seeing like seeing the the master at work in a way and I actually came up to you and told you something about this right after the session was over and I said you know what you did was amazing it, I was just really taken aback like how do you do it I asked you something like that how do you sing like that? Or how do you be, how do you sing so freely? And your response was, I just open up and trust. And that was, I have never forgotten that. And I will think that there's some, my first teacher in music was a guitar player from South Carolina, who was like a hidden Buddha legend, passed away in his fifties. He was like a second father to me. And there's things that he told me I'll never forget, but I'll never forget that moment that, that when you said that, because, uh, I will be learning, uh, learning about it. I think until um, if I if I live to be, you know, however old, ninety or hundred or less. Um, so thank you for that. Mm. Yeah, and keep doing it until it feels like you you're hitting the sweet spot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've definitely, you know, I've had, I've, I have the moments of, of course, I've had the moments of flow and and, and been there, but. Uh, Vocally, though, it was, it was a, that's a different thing. Yeah, to see you vocally was was uh, my experiences are usually more like in composition. You know, like feeling the flow, like in that flow state, in the midst of writing, but in the midst of performing, that's where you, you know you've you've found you found that spot. I think a long time ago. <laughs> There's a once a, a teacher in one of the New Age conferences that I attended in the 80s said that the power of music is in its suggestion that's how it suggests it can suggest where the performer is it can suggest a painting or a picture it can suggest the flowing of prana it can suggest the um the release of heavy energy music can suggest many things and in that power it can be considered um aligning healing aligning music the power of suggestion and your imagination can assign any suggestion that the imagination can come up with you can uh, 
suggests that we're in uh, an infinite vertical field through music. <laughs> and, and if the listener takes that, what happens is that the mind stops holding on to linear content and feels uh, a very transcendental freedom, a very transcendental lightness. Do you, do you feel that... Uh, has there been any inspiration in your life from the Sufi tradition? Yes. Hazrat Inyat Khan, Sufi. Yes, reading his book, book, The Music of Life, I know it well. really like a yeah. Bible. I'm sure it, it, it turned, it reinforced my thoughts and it validated and encouraged me at sort of uh, how to deconstruct Western attitudes about what music should be. When did you first come across that book? I don't know. I must have been browsing through a library and opened the book and said, hey, I should read more about this and investing in the book. That, that's an interesting place to find a book that, do I want to spend this money? But hey, this book is necessary. <coughs> and, you, and you invest in yourself, invest in your unfoldment. So I remember that book was an investment because it was pretty pricey. And uh, I don't usually buy books at random because um, I, I don't consider myself to be a reader. I read for information and inspiration, and I don't generally get it from novels. I don't, I don't think I've ever read a novel. I might have watched movies, but I read for uh, pick up information that will guide me inwardly and let me do the rest from there. And uh, music of life, I don't remember passages from the book, but it was a definite point along my journey into freer music. just remembering that after the July our meeting at the Healing Sounds Intensive Luraji happened to mention to me that he does an annual event uh, that he offers music and laughter the Creativity Conference every fall and it's held at the Sufi Abode of the Message so that became an annual event mm-hmm. that we went to together every October. Uh, and you were going every year there? Every year. That was it, was, a, it Ili- was an annual Ili- thing. It was yeah. in uh, October, usually the beautiful times for the, with the Berkshire. Berkshire. Berkshires, yes. yeah. The green Berkshire Mountain. Yep, and near the, that, it was you who told me when we went for a hike how that was the original space the campground yeah, yeah, yeah. yep yep where um, Ramdas when it was the it's this it was the space oh, yeah. way it was back bef- the um, omega omegas the original got started omega. there yeah and and Laraji remembered when Ramdas 
and who uh, just a bunch of people from that era who were young men at the time uh, and they they worked together to to lay the foundation that's Did you guys the, know Ramdas? Uh, I've I never met him did. face to face. No. I smiled at him in the food line at a conference. Yeah, <laughs> but I enjoyed his lectures. I especially enjoyed the pauses. That those pauses were very deep. He would talk, and then it'd be silence. And sometimes I wonder maybe he forgot where we were. <laughs> <laughs> but it was very useful. I, those pauses were very. And his book "Be Here Now" is a strong another auspicious point of my reading. That book I read through, and while reading, I felt like I had been invited into another alternate, parallel reality. Do you feel that you were always kind of drawn to these deeper perceptions of life from a young age? Yes. that was. I think what started it was my being exposed to the image that the Baptist Church presented of Jesus Christ. And uh, I was very curious about, say, wow, that's an interesting chap. <laughs> I want to do that. <laughs> and I, the quotes that the church represented, uh, I didn't understand them all, but I got that this figure Jesus was supposed to be a model for a very evolved human behavior and a very evolved understanding and relationship with the source of the of creation, and I admired that. Uh, but there were still some gaps in the explanation of what that was all about. That didn't seem like the church congregation totally understood enough to give me answers I was looking for. Just why, who, what, and as we evolved, or as uh, I grew up. I started hearing what seemed to be conflicting or alternative stories of Jesus that he wasn't he didn't actually die. He left a tomb with Mary Magdalene. They had a child and a life in southern France. And someone even said he played the auto harp. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, All of these stories, man, once your imagination gets hold of these stories and you start questioning what is the real what the what's the real narrative here? And then that his name wasn't Jesus, it was Yeshua. It was, and that uh, I said, well, it's too late now. The damage has been done. I've been impressed by this story, and it impressed me to go seek inwardly for this connection for myself. So that was my, uh, Jesus, regardless of if Jesus ever really lived, the fact that the story got a hold, my imagination got a hold of that story, and it took the ball and ran with it. And I did my own inner research and I was inspired by Jesus the Christ story to even model my life of what kindness and service. people who are exploring and want to uh, bring more juice into what they're doing or more relevance into what they're doing uh, or to have their work not only be fun for them but to have meaning for those probably in the market 
and I find that creativity for me is a, a release of energy, some unconscious release or conscious release of energy. And the creativity, the art is a byproduct. You almost could say it's the wake of the real moment. But you can release energy, it could be angry energy, it could be feel good energy, just sort of. And if I were to do that while interacting with a medium that's pre tuned, a prepared medium, releasing energy in close proximity to a prepared medium, then uh, you would hear music that sounds interesting. Uh, you would have art that looks interesting. And the person who comes and looks at the art says, wow, I feel the energy of that. So creativity, at my point, is intentionally connecting or aligning energy and then releasing it before an audience or in a studio mindful release of energy and uh, to help it to become more palatable to whoever's going to enjoy it you of course work on your art whether it's doing calisthenics or you examine the themes that you want to bring to the table and then you get into a state however you do it align intention (laughs) (laughs) and then energy (laughs) you release energy And the release of energy monitored by whatever format or what do you call it when you you work through a medium, the medium, whatever medium you are releasing through picks it up and becomes a reflection of that release of energy. That's one thing, a creativity in that way. Uh, So when I look at art or listen to music, I feel I'm listening to release of energy release uh, sometimes it's a mindless release you just go and scream and kick and yell and strum your guitar and make a billion bucks <laughs> yeah, and actually I'm curious like how you might define I don't want to say like make a a difference of inferiority or superiority about certain kinds of music and others, but there's obviously a, an, a, I mean, it could be mortifying by like intention or like a depth in some cases, a depth of course of understanding or wisdom or whatever. Meaning like, how do you look at, if you're speaking to like a young person about creativity and you're speaking to this person that you would be encouraging to explore the deepest capacity of their aspirations or their potential like how how would you align them versus like an interest in just pop music versus or like what if they were like how would you what kind of suggestions would you make and how would you differentiate the landscape of what's popular in music these days and what has what you would uh, interpret as a a higher form of energy, for lack of a better term. Hmm. Uh, yeah, good question there. Well, not, I've been exposed to music. Uh, Educational-wise, I've been exposed to a wide range of music. And, and listening to music, you say, oh, that sounds good. I'd like to do that. In fact, I can do that. Or you hear vocal music. Or you You have an experience listening to other people's music. And then I try to imitate it. You know, there are the three stages you you uh, imitate and then you uh, mix you mix and match what you imitate with and then you discover yourself your 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 language 
so that that's one um, understanding that a three system imitate, then uh, uh, experiment with what you're imitating, and then you discover your language. But then there's the music of releasing for therapy, so you're not concerned about what it sounds like to someone else. You feel good, you release, your, it reflects, you get into your whole body, your breath opens up. But there are some things uh, that you want to do when finding optimal music and that you want to find music that lets you breathe, lets you be connected to your breath, that can re represent a human physique that is in ease and in comfort and uh, also maybe a mind or emotionality that is aligned with the divine. So you have practices, spiritual practices. You don't have to call them spiritual practice. You can call them feel-good practices, introspective practices, contemplative practices, that, uh, or get into meditation, and then you'll be able to bring to your release an understanding that you're not just releasing within a third dimension, within four walls. You probably you'll come to a place where realizing you're actually embracing the sky, like Jimi Hendrix says, "Pardon me while I kiss the sky." That uh, you can move beyond the apparent world and move into the non-apparent space, and releasing there, you I find I get more bang for my buck. <laughs> release into the non-apparent space, which is the universal presence. Do you see that as, and do you actually kind of, in a way, self-define it, that when you're doing music, often it's like an offering? Uh, it's a service and an offering, yes. I usually use that term a lot, uh, music offering, so that it's, there is a sense of service involved, a sense of kindness, nurturing, and the suggestion of a gift that hopefully this will enhance some aspect of your experience. But you're talking more about like the audience, like present, right? Yes, yeah. that an offering. It, it, to do it alone, you can do offer you ever, it. Do you offer it though to like a, like a deity or like a, the, to whatever you would call like an omnipresent, you know what I'm saying? Like Yes, but there, I, I would say I'm offering it to my, you can call it my higher self or my absolute self. Then the, the term deity, the Hare Krishnas tried to impress that God is in the deity. And when you offer to the deity, you're really offering it to God. Um, I was slow to get on board with that one. That, um, because there's God in that, in that rock, that Morty, and it's not in that Coke bottle. Wait. <laughs> so I'm into the universal space, that they're offering it to universal space now, as opposed to any particular person. And on that line, not bowing to anybody in particular, bowing as an offering of respect and conscious awareness into an, a universal field that's present. Even if I'm bowing and it looks like I'm bowing in your direction, uh, you, it's okay for you to feel grand about it, but I'm also bowing into the absolute field, and the absolute field is indeed where you are. So I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm bowing into everyone's absolute field. So, I mean, essentially by seeing the non-duality or em emptiness in every single person, yes. you're, mm -hmm. you're offering, an, when offering to the audience, it can also be simultaneously viewed 
the right or the correct view of it would be that you are offering it into whatever kind of deity that you could self-define at that moment or the deity is because the deity is residing within that that yes. combination of aggregates and matter and spirit that's in front of you in that moment yes that's that comes that's up big time in uh, Shiva Ratri ceremonies where we're pouring ghee and uh, cannabis onto the Shiva Lingam. Where is it? Where these are ceremonies that you do? Yeah, they at happen home, uh, like, as a rotating no, yearly event called Shiva Ratri. It happens it, all night long. All night. People at, chant at the ashram. Oh, at the ashram. Twenty-four yeah. hour. Okay, at Ananda. Yes. Okay. Well, and some, I'm sure some, some ashrams. Many, yeah, but this is a Shiva. Shiva Ratri is a is a is a festival holiday. Yeah. That 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 would be at, at many ashrams. Many, and it doesn't have to be ashrams. It could be anywhere people who practice Shiva Ratri. So it's an all night. Uh, Steve Gorn has played as yeah. we've played. Then you rotate. But for 24 hours, it doesn't stop. Yeah. And this is like a Hindu festival, right? Yes. yes. Yeah. And you usually end about 8 o'clock in the morning, and then there's a big feast. But uh, Shiva, as I mentioned earlier, offers the uh, cannabis flower. And so the Shiva Ratri in very real rituals include bong, which is ghee or, or milk... Uh, Fused with cannabis, and you drink that, and so you can imagine where we're it going. It has psychoactive yeah. properties. Uh-huh. It's like full. Okay. And therefore, you're immersed in intention. You're chanting Shiva, and so there, your psychoactive experience is aligned. The intention is aligned within the the Shiva. And it's story. a communal experience, yes. and that's yeah. very important. And that's something I would. Um, underscore to young people especially how relative, not just relative how vital communal, genuine communal experience is Um, and I don't think we, I, I think that your generation and subsequent generations are craving that and finding it but I think our generation moved away from it. It became all this individual, you know, yeah. bow to the individualized, independent, unique, instead of what is the collective, what is, what is this thing that is our common humanity. For me, when I am at my best in whether it's performance or just being present at something and it may be a big part of the energy work that I do um, I I tap into a sense a maternal sense so I whether I'm with one person or an entire audience I feel I can feel it in me I can feel like oh I love I love these people I love And I look it out and I see them as children. I see the child aspect. Because for me, that's the most resonant. And and it ties into my my Hellenic, my Pythagorean, that fifth interval of the fifth that the child resides in. I truly believe that our 
most expressive essence of its highest form resides in our purity, our child quality that sometimes just gets so pushed down, whether you are a little child or you're 90, and it's always there. To, so to be genuine and, and expressive and connective, connecting to your child energy, and if that's done through just centering, through stillness and I think that's a big piece too <clears throat> when Laraji was talking the, the points to precede that imitative quality that, that being inspired by someone and trying to emulate first center yourself you know and that's different things to different people but really I, I think the energetics that Laraji spoke to for me, really is the recognition of our connectedness. And it, and it really does bring up in me this maternal sense. Like I want to go out and hug everyone. So I kind of picture this warmth coming out of us when we're on stage, just like this warmth coming out like a big energetic hug and embracing people. And when people are receptive to that, it's magical. Uh, I, are you reciting things in your mind, or are you just kind of like non? It's more just a feeling, or like it's a more. It's more experiencing a feeling that I. It, it's it just comes up in me. Uh, it just does, and and it's yeah. It's more a feeling. Sometimes I can say something internally. Um, and, and I'll catch someone's eye and often, more often than not I think Laraji can vouch this when we do, when that happens after a show there's a lot of tears there's people who come up in tears saying I don't know what just happened but I can't stop crying it feels good if, if they have release yeah. because they know they don't know but they know on the bigger, the noose scale, yeah. there's a knowing that they're in a safe space that they can emote and not be embarrassed. And that happens a whole lot when we do laughter work. People are stunned when they cross over that little fine line from hearty laughter into tears. So we always try to mention up front that you know you might that might happen and please don't shut it down and it's it's equally as beneficial of 
rituals or practices do you do? Do you, do you tend to do something do, before performances, yeah, before recordings and stuff? Usually, like... I mean, back, backstage? Yeah. And then, or even the day of, like, in, um, I guess you probably have a day, a morning practice that you do in general, or... I think I'm flattered true. by you thinking that way. <laughs> <laughs> but we do a backstage thing more... No, I wouldn't say 100% of the time, but most of the time. Mm. Laraji gets very, very, very quiet. And I know to let that go and let him go, because he's going in, in his his way, and I'll, and I'll do whatever I'm doing. And then shortly before, without saying anything, we'll do, we both are uh, very respectful of Tai Chi, and I did Tai Chi practice for many years. So we'll do our own version of like a push hands so that it is, and it, here again, energy will come together and just like move w- with just to kind of get into each other's energy flow at that moment. Um, yes, so that translates on stage as a flowiness rather than a push, rather than a competition that we're blending into the... Uh, the blending experience of being on stage. I also f- work when I'm touring a lot. I backstage do five rhythms dancing backstage to get into flow, staccato, chaos, lyrical, and stillness. Also do some laughing. Also do mind science affirmations. You know, everything I need for this concert to come off beautiful, I now have. And uh, another thing I call beyondic. You sit on a on a piece of paper backstage, you just write all the quotes you imagine people will be uh, sharing with you after the performance, assuming you did a great performance. You're like, wow, that's great. Where can I get your recordings? I'll just write those down to actually project the idea of a successful performance. It's like a vision board. So you, vision board, you, yeah. worked a, you worked a lot with affirmations. In your life. Yes, I do believe them. I believe that has gotten me very far. Much less, but yes, I have. Laraji did a very deep commitment to mind science. The good affirmations, what they do is they shift the emotional field. And you get to shift your mental equivalent so that you are in the present moment rather than going toward it or wanting it. You... You can say you trick your mind. The subconscious mind doesn't know what's real or false. And just like a little child, there's a boogeyman. And the child, really? But you, uh, <laughs> but then you talk, you know, I am prepared to deliver a most spectacular concert. And I'm delivering it. All the instruments and the equipment I need for this evening are right at my fingertips. I am in great shape. And this is good. Um, with Tai Chi, there is this, you get your body to move a certain way so that when you interact with an instrument, the music is a byproduct of your intentions interacting with this musical medium. So the music tends to be softer or more fluid. So there's getting into your body first as your first instrument and letting your voice become extension of this. So affirmations kind of allow me to baptize myself in an intention and make it real. And it's vocal, it's verbal. There's three ways of doing an affirmation. I can uh, just recite it 
First person, I, Laraji, am here and ready to offer a most beautiful concert, and I'm really prepared for this. I can block my ears so that I hear my own voice through bone-conducted sound. That's another way. And then third, I can look in a mirror and make eye contact with myself. Says, you, Laraji, are most talented, and this evening you are bringing a most beautiful experience. And you just talk yourself into this space. And affirmations, and also you give thanks. Good affirmations, you always give thanks as if it is already happening. So now this is a big leap for someone who is not uh, aware of their ability, of the, the creative mind, creativity. You can create your life. If you can imagine uh, a different reality, you can create it. And what mind can conceive, man can achieve, something of that in order. If you can conceive it, and conceiving it man not just thinking about it being in the future, but if you can conceive it as being right now, this means overturning what the world is presenting as a reality. And you can live in this alternative reality, even if it's for five minutes of affirmations, you are planting seeds for your uh, transformational existence. When did you get into mind science? Like, where, where, how did that... Where, where, because this is also yoga, of course. And, yes. Uh, um, yogic theory and Buddhism in a way, but... Um, I got into mind science by confronting a fear. I was getting on a bus going somewhere, and there were several seats empty. One of them was near the most beautiful woman in the world. And I said... I confronted my fear and dared, dared to sit next to <laughs> And I sat next to her. And uh, she was reading a book so intently, and she smiled at me, and she allowed me to eavesdrop on what she was reading. And she was reading something by either Mind Science or Thomas Troward. And I got more interested in the book than her. And I, and I took notes on the book on how I could get it, and I went to the Mind Science Center in New York and purchased the book and got deep into mind science because I took this leap of, uh, <laughs> of, of uh, actually doing something new and outrageous. Well, and, the ta- and Thomas... This was about... In the, 70s? Probably in the 70s, I think after I got into meditation, and uh, because the book, I remember reading the book, and the book aligned with meditation. The book talks about using mind that uh, you can shift your reality if you can shift the way you are channeling thought. And Thomas Troward was, Judge Thomas Troward's writings are what inspired Ernest Holmes, who is credited as being the father of mind science. So that's the Troward, and I, I, I got excited when Laraji said that because I remembered early on that 2008 when we met at the Healing Sounds Intensive, we, we stayed up one night and talked all night in the lobby area and found, he was amazed, I was amazed that we both knew Troward yeah. uh, and we intersected with that because that can be obscure. Yeah, a lot of had people. Had you come across it? Oh, yeah. When did I, you come across I it? I came across it, my daughter's godfather who was very esoteric man um 
he was friends with Harold Sherman and Edgar Casey, and and uh, he and his wife were. My daughter's named after his his wife, um, and he introduced me when I was before Aliki was even born. I was probably late twenties, early thirties. To Troward, he gave me my first three volumes of Thomas Troward's work, and at first they seemed so dense. They, you know, like very scientific. Dry. If you have a good scientific mind, you'll drink it up. Uh, I heard one report of one of teachers of Troward's works at Judge Thomas Troward, who was in Edinburgh, right, Scotland, Edinburgh, that's where Scotland. that his lectures were so dense and monotonous, some people would fall asleep. But the books themselves, I feel like I'm carrying a key to a parallel future. They're remarkable, and, and you can do them in little bites. You can do a paragraph. Yes. And just close the book and pick it up and open it at random and just close it. A note on that. Uh, I did gung-ho. I found that I could read a word at a time and drink it in. And I took it in deeper. Like it was said, the cat ran up the stairs. I was at the. What does the mean? Cat. Cat. Ran. What does ran mean? Up. What does up mean? The. The. Stairs. I would integrate that dense material that way, and I would feel myself leaping, leaping and bounce, mm. taking it in because I knew, for one thing, that was strong evolutional material, and secondly, that issue of people of color was how to neutralize residual slave mind mentality, and this material I saw was a key for me of neutralizing any residual slave mentality or mindset. Did you feel that in your own mind, like uh, growing up? and? Uh, I feel that uh, from my folks and my relatives that there's a, there's a holdover from the slave uh, period, everything from the way that they handle uh, discipline to food to language to mindset, that idea of racial superiority and inferiority, you just quantum leap all over that when you're, when you're dealing with mind. Uh, mind science says the mind is God. Mind is, uh, and we're talking about not the mind that thinks, it's the mind that is pure I am. The noose. Yes, noose, the now, the now mind. It, it doesn't think. Uh, and uh, you can get it to think, but then you get into, I consider that the forbidden fruit. If you nibble on linear thought, you're taking yourself into the rabbit holes. But just pure mind is God. It's, it's creative intelligence. And if one can isolate that and get into it and contemplate it and work with it and serve it, that uh, they can lift themselves off, out of stubborn platforms of life and enter new sun, sunlit fields.
this is a good transition to the the name of the project, which we I, the name originally was called. So it was def, defined taken from the ancient Greek. That was where I came up with the idea originally. Um, the noose, in as how it would be pronounced in ancient Greek. I simultaneously the way that's spelled in English is N O U S. So obviously it is parallel with new in French which means obviously we, so the collective concept, the collective consciousness. So I thought, well, what a great name for an improvisational ensemble. Um, the problem I had with it was new forever, you know, I was calling it. But then when the album started coming out, I was trying to tell people, I kept on saying the new, new, the new, new. <laughs> and no one understood what I was talking about. So I was like, and it had like this very kraut rock vibe like german rock kind of thing so i was like now so that sounds kind of cool you know even though and i thought it was kind of closer to the greek but as rg corrected me the correct greek would be nous and when we were speaking we determined that wouldn't necessarily be still the best uh, way of using it so we're staying with nous for now even though it means the name is about nous and uh in a way, I think that the I, definitely our record, but I think also the the project in 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 a whole, um, the other three albums with the the group of uh, twelve other musicians, but in our in our, our record in particular, really, and I think you know Luaji and Argy's music is doing this all the time, but uh, um, we really tap into those moments of like that collective consciousness, that higher mind, that vertical mind, mm-hmm. nowness that you're referring to, and. I did uh, Naus, the second incarnation of Naus was with Carl Berger, who's coming tonight. He's a g- great jazz musician who's all you, very much aligns with the way that you guys see the world. And that was called Naus One Mind. And that was his thing. He, his thing is his musical way. He teaches music as a, as a professor. He calls it the One Mind. You know, his, his method's mm-hmm. the One Mind. With music as his book he just wrote it's called that the sounds Mind. good it sounds non-verbal yeah so yes. it's but it's all it's all you know it's it's all the i'm i'm using this primarily as a moment to talk about the titling of mouse but uh um uh but the other thing is is then we that i chose the circumpunct as this the, the symbol which is you know a good representation of what we're trying to talk about is my my point and it's amazing because I don't even know how that all came together. But uh, you were it's amazing. inspired. Yeah, well, I just what I just realized. But as we've spoken about in previous interviews, but just to get it on uh, tape here, um, the concept of the circumpunct is you have the circle, but then you have the dot in the center. And the circle, obviously, is that idea of the circle has no end and no beginning, and it can encompass everything. Simultaneously, the circumpunct can represent, like, the jiva or the individual soul. And, like, in even in astrophysics or in, in, in science, as I understand it, there is no center of the universe. There's only wherever you're standing, you're in the center of it. So the circumpunct being a very, very ancient symbol, actually one of the most ancient symbols across many, many cultures, um... I thought was a perfect kind of expression of that noose idea. You know what's interesting that just came to mind is when you beautifully state that, how about five years, six years ago, there was a uh, collective of ambient musicians and music tracks of which Laraji's 
naturally on that as are Yasos and Steve Halpern and go, you can name many. What is the title? I am center. Yeah. And it's all musicians who would embody exactly that visual yeah. over and over and it, it just struck me I am center yeah. and that is um, the epitome of what people call ambient or new age and, and I don't like any of those titles because they, they miss something mm-hmm. uh, the word miss I missed out something in the ritual morning ritual I've been taking cold showers and I'm finding something quite unique about that yeah, it's powerful. Yeah. I was doing the Wim Hof method for a while. Have you oh, ever heard about yes, him? Yes, I have. Yeah, and it was, it's quite powerful. I mean, it is. it's really crazy what it can... Uh, it does something to the vagus nervous system good. Exactly, know? yeah. It's, it's uh, yeah. But do you, are you, are you, uh, do you do a sitting meditation? Like, do you sit every day? Or yes, every day informally, meaning that uh, whether it's in the park or at home on a nice high safu, uh, I prefer to sit in lotus position when doing concerts when it's when it's possible. I when somebody says, "Where's your home?" I say, "Lotus position." When I'm in lotus position, I contact my center. I feel cozy in the universe. But I sit uh, every day. I'm making a connection. Uh, whether it's a park bench or at home. And though it would be ideal to do it half an hour at a time, and I consider a hero's or heroine's length of time would be 10% of every day. Give 10% of your day to the universe. So that would be about two hours and 40 minutes. Why 10%? It's the idea of tithing. Ah, okay, interesting. Tithing your energy. Totally. And it can bring back Mm-hmm. But that's a very tithing 10% is actually a very Christian, Judeo-Christian concept, isn't uh-huh. it? I and, don't know uh, if that 10% I think, comes yeah, from I other don't other know if Judaism has that in it. Well, but yes. Do, Judy? It, tithing is definitely... Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but it, it's not a matter of what is the percentage. It's just the fact that you are making a committed amount. Yeah. That you're tithing it and... and happily giving it so using your energy that way um, yeah do you do do you sit like ritualistically daily or is it more also just like open for me I do best when I have a set time like when I get up in the morning and I I ritualistically I light candles incense I you do it around the same time every morning I try to I'm the same way yeah For but me, I also that, have a two-year-old so I have to well and, 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 and yeah and I and I can I go through spurts too where it isn't it's not feasible but I try to then find as Raji said if I'm walking uh, on the bike path and there's a bench yeah. and I haven't had my morning sit I'll yeah. sit down and just make it a point to come. I mean, the way to do it is to be living it all the time and to be able to spontaneously be sitting. Yeah, spontane- but I'm not the, uh, the that's like, I, I, I'm not that kind of master. So I, I, you know, if I don't, I don't feel right if I don't kind of like get it structured in my day. And it's kind of like what you said, and it is a tithing. It's an offering of that time to that space, whatever you call it, the noose, the divine, 
inner Buddha, the inner, uh, the higher mind, whatever it is, or just tranquility or, you know, just cultivating a strong mind. Um, I, I kind of need that structure for, it seems to me, I've tested it out over 15 years and it seems to be the most conducive for, yes, uh, stability. But I, yearn to be just the person that spontaneously wakes up and just goes through life like sitting you know here like kind of always kind of there they're always but on the cushion a million uh, like the sadhus do that what's that the sadhus in india i think yeah they do that yeah totally. they don't have a two-year-old running around <laughs> yeah yeah totally um Laraj, it sounds like you're a really, uh, a really night owl. I'm much, very much I, a night owl. I do my best work at night, maybe because it aligns with the meditation sweet hours. It's interesting, though, that you meditate in the middle of the night, which is was actually a, 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 um, I'm sure you know the life of Buddha. They actually say like he stayed up. He only slept like two, three hours a night. You know the story is a Buddha. Um, he taught the the, the 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 devas in the middle of the night. He would teach all the stu- like the humans during the day, and then he would sit in night, and then the devas would all come to him, and he'd teach them in the middle of the night. He'd sleep for a couple of hours, and then get up and and do it again. That sounds real. There's something to say that the uh, ether is clearest in your location around three in the morning because yes, and they people call are that, sleeping. Yeah, yeah. The monks hour too. Monks hour. I find it very peaceful. I. Matter of fact, if I'm up at 12 and I'm getting into creativity, a burst of uh, very auspicious energy starts happening around 3 o'clock, and I look at the clock, yep, <laughs> and it's happening. What time do you tend to get up? Uh, you get up earlier now. Sometimes I go sleep about 6 or 7, and I'll get up, uh, depending on what I've... Sometimes I can sleep for 2 hours, 3 hours, uh, if I've got something else to do that day. And sometimes I'll go to 12 or 1 o'clock. Uh, but it's not structured, tightly structured. And uh, it works for me. It really, I mean, you just, you take it day by day. It just shifts day yes. by day. What time mm-hmm. you go to sleep, what, what projects time you get up. are up. And, uh, I would never be able to do that. I, my, I mean, I'd be sick. Like, my body, like, <laughs> uh, can't, my immune system, I don't think, could handle that. Mm. It's interesting. Like, uh, it, my immune system. I need system, more structure, yeah. too. The Maybe I had structure schedule. for a while yeah. mean, with ashrams and uh, New Age conferences. There's yeah. those structures of getting up in the morning to play for 6.30 or 8.30 meditation class and then fire ceremony in the evening or in the midday. So I've been subjected to structure. And, and uh, you do well with it. Mm-hmm. Like when we're at the ashram, yeah. we're, we're, we're out before usually well before midnight because we're up early to play for the morning meditation. Yeah, uh, so I wouldn't do the midnight oil. I wouldn't burn it during conference time and ashram time. So I shift for that. But when you're on your own, and when you're in the process of of writing or recording, you tend to do your best work in the middle of the night. Yes. Oh, even last night, I picked Laraji up at Amtrak. I when I I was up since five yesterday morning, so by. Nine thirty, ten. I said I can't keep my eyes open. I, I went up. That was it. It was after three before Laraji even started to, you know, feel a sense of needing rest. Yeah. What do you think? Um, um, uh, um, 
Because it sounds like you probably don't watch like a lot of movies. Obviously, probably not television. I'm guessing. Well, you're watching. Well, I watched a lot a during lot. the pandemic. Yeah. Oh, you did. Yeah. The yeah. Marvelous Maisel. Okay. <laughs> and Netflix. the newest one, the Underground Railroad. Oh, so you do watch? You do watch television? Okay. Because well, I kind of watched uh, Prime Time, Prime, and Netflix. YouTube's. And okay. YouTube. Okay. So you're you're in there. I was curious what your thoughts were about like the presence of screens and education and new education it's a new form of education yeah access to a wider highway of information flow yeah of course it has a downside sounds, yes it's some you question some of it uh but it's a wider i got a good education also allowed me to deconstruct my uh fantasies and fetishes around my favorite actresses you 